The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode, and possibly a little creepy episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben, and it's going to be creepy indeed. How are you, man? Doing well. I'm a fall weather guy, so the heat going away and the, the cooler weather moving in, a little bit of rain, that's my wheelhouse, so I'm, I'm happy to see that coming. How's it where you're at? cold <laughs> we went completely from like 80 85 degrees to 30 and sleet so yeah i think that's god's way of punishing you for living where you live so you're an ass yeah it's it's like a smooth 50 a little cloudy today it has rained and sleeted most of the day to here today so yeah anyway well, I'm on a staycation, so it can rain and sleet all day at 50 to 30 degrees for me, and I won't care one bit. Well, I recently moved offices, and it's pretty much across the street, so it can sleet all at once for me, too, and I can still make it to work. Yes, because you have to walk across a driveway. I'm lucky. What can I say? Yeah, you are. You are lucky, my friend. That is for sure. Tom, why is this going to be a creepy, crawly episode? Tonight, Ben, we are recording our annual Halloween episode, and per tradition, we like to look up creepy or strange or macabre procedures, medical procedures, medical facts, um, stuff people used to do to each other for things that they thought made them better, but we absolutely know made things worse, and uh, we like to talk about them here on the show. Yeah, it's our third annual. Isn't that weird? It's not like Treehouse of Horrors with the Simpsons where it's like, you know, 25. Yeah. Hey, man, it's, it's three. That's. But still, that's the, the fact that this is our third annual, I'm just still a little weird to me. I, I agree. Yes. And in order to make sure we didn't repeat things we had already done, I re-listened to some of those shows because I, I know we sound like a well-oiled machine on the outside and you think we'd have some kind of spreadsheet that tracks the procedures we've talked about before or something, but we don't. So I was listening that to it. Do what? I said that would have made sense. It would make sense, but yeah, that's yeah, maybe maybe at the end of this year, who knows? What I would say is that each year we always say, This is the year we're gonna get kicked off the air. <laughs> and uh we're still here so that that was pretty funny listening to us say i don't know if we could talk about this i'm like man 
If I only knew then what I know now, you're going to talk about way worse things coming up soon. It, it was uh, yeah. it was a fun trip down memory lane. I did not get a chance to listen to them because uh, I'm not on a staycation. But I don't think we're going to. I hope I don't repeat anything. And if I do, then uh, I will tell you, we will edit it out and the crowd will never know. Well, but they'll know about this now. So then they're going to go, well, what did we miss? Well, that's their fault. I guess I'll have to go back and listen to the past two episodes and try and piece it all together. So, all right. Well, is this your favorite part of the show? Is this the part? Yeah, I guess we should probably get into our that whole part. So, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast. Our website's www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email admin at justsomepodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check out our merchandise shop, slash shop Tom, if if they wanted to help us out, how could they do that? Well, Ben, that's a big if. But if they wanted to help us out, they could go to our website. They could scroll down to just about the bottom of the page. They could see our Amazon affiliate link. Click on that before they do any searching or shopping. And after they put things in their basket, it will help with the show. It's free. They won't even know we were there. And we would greatly appreciate it. All right, man. Well, you ready to get into our story that you may have missed so that we can get into all the horror? <laughs> the treehouse of horror. Like, I wonder if we're going to get sued now. Well, no, I don't think we're making any money off of it, so it's fine. Well, not only uh, that, but I'm pretty sure Matt Groening will be like, who? <laughs> it's not It's not like uh, It's not like there were competition somehow. for here, the, here. We'll, we'll see. the Simpsons, not a sponsor. There. That better? <laughs> <laughs> It is. It makes me feel better. I could sleep. I could sleep now tonight knowing that. Oh, all right. Well, anyway, let's get into our story that you may have missed, Tom. Okay. So I found an interesting article and I thought, because this is something that we have discussed at length before and we you know we're, it's our third annual uh, Halloween show. And so I thought, well, why not rehash some other old shit that we talked about? <laughs> That's a Tom. interesting uh, game plan there, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. <laughs> Tom, do you remember the pandemic of 1918? <laughs> like I was there. You mean you weren't? <laughs> yeah, I am old now, but not quite that old. No, I, I mean, I I am aware of some of the facts and things that I have read, but um, I don't have any personal firsthand knowledge. Well... Tom found this interesting article that talks about conspiracy theories in relation to the flu pandemic of 1918. So the conspiracy theories that were going around at that time. And I thought this would be kind of interesting to look at. That would honestly, that's going to be very interesting. I can't wait. One myth propagated in the United States and the United Kingdom was that the pandemic was linked to the use of aspirin produced by the German pharmaceutical company Bayer. Uh, the mistrust of the products of German origin is not as strange as it may seem, given the start of the pandemic coincided with the end of World War I. Uh, the myth caused enough of a stir to prompt the American branch of Bayer to reassure buyers, and it actually they did an advertisement that stated the manufacturer of Bayer tablets and capsules of aspirin is completely under American control. Ironically, some later studies had suggested that aspirin may have indeed worsened some of the symptoms, Others fully responsible for the pandemic, but not due to tampering. So that was one conspiracy theory. I, I wasn't shocked. I was going to say Purdue Pharma, but, you know, I knew there was going to be some kind of link to a drug company. 
How about, and this one might shock you, I don't claims of biological warfare. Oh. It's similar, isn't it? It does sound similar, except I would say in this case, I understand their point of view because they had actually seen chemical and biological warfare in World War One versus nowadays it's people on the internet making things up. So Well, that's that's not far from what this is though. So there was one rumor that started in the pages of a Brazilian newspaper that suggested the influenza virus was spread around the world by German submarines. Uh, there are similar stories claim that German boats come ashore on the, the east coast of the United States and release the infectious agent into the atmosphere. There was an account in the book, Flu, the story of the great influenza pandemic of 1918 and the search for the virus that caused it. And here's what they wrote. The plague came in on a camouflaged German ship that had crept into Boston Harbor under cover of darkness and released the germs that seeded the city. There was an eyewitness, an old woman, who said she saw a greasy-looking cloud that floated over the harbor and wafted over the docks. Which, if you think about it, sounds a lot like social media stuff that you hear now. No, no, it, it does. But what I was, what I meant was the troops that had been in World War One had actually been gassed. You know, they had actually been exposed to biological and chemical agents. So I can understand their fear. Like, hey, I just got shot at and someone threw mustard gas at us and a lot of people died. I can understand their fear and concern is what I'm getting at versus now I'm yeah. like, no, <laughs> like it's not it's not quite that simple. It does sound awfully a lot like a Twitter account. My grandmother knows a lady who saw a cloud. Yeah. Or you hear like, well, no, my friend went to a doctor and the doctor said that you can drink water uh, for, you know, chest pains and that'll make your heart attack go away. I mean, very similar type. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the next one, uh, a perpetually quote unquote foreign plague. Mm. So I'm sure you may remember certain members of the executive branch. Uh, may have come out with phrases like the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. The phenomenon of naming a pandemic or epidemic after a specific country is by no means new. The 1918 flu is often called the Spanish flu, though it did not originate. Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, it did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> So one of the authors of a uh, article looking at this explains that it is usually accepted that because Spain was a neutral country in World War I, freedom of the press in Spain was greater than that of the allied countries and in Germany. And the U.S. and the European press, likely for political reasons, did not acknowledge or transmit timely and accurate news about the high number of casualties among the military and civilian populations that were attributable to the ongoing influenza epidemic. The other thing that I found was interesting, in Spain, it was referred to as the French flu. In Brazil, it was the German flu. In Poland, it was the Bolshevik disease. And in uh, Senegal, it was the Brazilian flu. In short, each country nicknamed the virus after a political opponent. Yes. Um, Again, sounds awfully familiar. You know, it's funny. I read a similar story, Ben. You know, one of the things from 1918 I found really interesting when they were talking about the flu that is similar today. What's that? They mentioned Hillary Clinton in her emails. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, God damn. (laughs) That that lady has really done some work. (laughs) 
I should not have been taking a drink. <laughs> I just about died. <laughs> oh, man. I'm telling you, those Clintons. <laughs> I've lost control of the show. Twelve minutes in. Twelve minutes um, in. Oh. Anyway, so that was the story that I thought was interesting, talking about conspiracy theories and, and how, honestly, really not too far off from what we're dealing with. It's it's not. And, and honestly, in some ways, I think it's a healthy thing for people to hear stuff like that now to realize that this is the human condition. Yes, that human beings will always try and find a way like we talked about apophenia. They, they will they will take facts and they will make up some slurry of information and then try and make it fit if they are unable to comprehend the information that they're given or like a cognitive dissonance. And that's what's happening today. It's what happened in the 1900s. And like I said, I know I've talked about on the show before when the pilgrims landed in North America, literally some of the first correspondence back to England was this place really sucks. The government here can't get anything going or make anything work. And I'm like, so literally the first Americans, ostensibly first Americans. I mean, there were you know, some people already here, but the ones I arrived, those first ones, they were like doing the same thing that you could see on any political propaganda website right now i mean it i just think it's good for humans to remind themselves that everything that we're doing now has been done before we might be doing it a different way or at a faster speed but this is literally the same condition and we survived all the other stuff if they could just slow down and take a deep breath and pull their head out of their ass we'll all make it through this together so i am really Thank you yeah, for the sound sense. effects. Yes, I like it. So I, I, I think that's a great story, actually, Ben. Thank you, sir. So shall we delve into... I am ready. I am super ready. Like I said, Halloween is my favorite time of year. It's my favorite day of the year. I am just itching to get this uh, this episode done. All right, well... A couple of mine are pretty long and, and lengthy, so why don't you jump on in, man? Alrighty. Well, so I, I'm going to just for a minute talk to everybody and just let them know uh, my process. Oh, you're going you're, you're to talk on a podcast? What? Shut, shut your mouth. So <laughs> what I'm saying, though, is I don't have for, for something like this, I don't have a game plan set out. I just kind of go, what are some creepy old things that we used to do in medicine or used to believe or whatever? And then I just, I write a bunch down and then I kind of just keep whittling them down until I have a couple that I want to talk about. One of the procedures, actually a couple of these procedures tonight, but this first one is just one that every time you put something in, this is one of the very first things that came up. Do you want to take a guess, Ben? It, it, uh, something with amputation. No, actually. Uh, well, I guess in a way it's amputation, <laughs> but not really. The lobotomy. Oh, eh, I should have thought about that. So th the lobotomy has actually got a really weird history and not just the fact that you were showing things to people's brains. So the very first documented surgical procedure that we associate with lobotomies was actually leucotomy and it was done in 1935 in portugal in a much different manner than what you're thinking he 
found a patient that was having seizures and he thought, you know, something's wrong in that skull and that's what's making them have the seizures, right? So I got to fix that thing Which, that's in there. I mean, that's scientific method at its best, my friend. But <laughs> what what he did to fix that thing being, you know, the brain was he drilled two holes behind the eyes. Well, not I mean, it's at the top of the head towards the towards the the frontal lobe. All right. But one over each eye. OK. Drilled straight down until he could see white matter and then wow. poured a combination of acids oh. into the human skull. Therefore, effectively eliminating that part of the skull that was causing problems, or in this case, the human's brain. Well, I mean, the seizure stopped because I'm pretty sure uh, I actually could not find a clear documentation, but it didn't seem to go well for the patient because apparently charting in 1935 wasn't that accurate or up to date. I wonder what GMR they use. They didn't have Jayco, so yeah. they didn't have to. They didn't have to charge. They didn't have to ask the patient his pain. My first thought on that is that, well, well, first off, let me backtrack just a tad. Tom and I researched separately. We have not talked about the uh, things that we're going to talk about because we want to do it live on the air to get live reactions like you saying pouring acid into their brain and me going, oh, because that's horrendous. Um, anyway, my first thought is that, you know, he, his thinking wasn't far off i mean it, it was something in the brain that causes seizures now well perhaps the lobotomy wasn't the best way to handle that wow i'm just how do you sign somebody up for that like at what point well i think honestly at this point it was probably you think it was syphilis do you think syphilis is causing a lot of problems do i, I, mean, I was, do you think it was syphilis no i don't think it was i think this was a like an organic case of seizures and they didn't that's why i think it is because there wasn't something else if they had seen a rash she's probably like oh you got the red bumps and the red bumps make you do stuff like this like i think this was a case of a patient actually having what we would call now epileptic seizures and while it's not funny there is that part of me that finds situations like this humorous where there's some guy just looking at a human being going there's something in that head box and i gotta fix that <laughs> like that's literally your entire scientific method. Wow. But Ben, it gets a little better or worse, depending on how you want to look at it. Okay. So that was 1935 in Portugal in the early 1940s in America, a doctor named Walter Freeman decides I got a much better. I, the guy wasn't wrong. He just didn't do it the right way. And came up with what we now call the lobotomy. Because like I said, that first one was actually called a leucotomy. That's what that doctor called it. So Friedman comes up with, I got a lobotomy. Primarily, there's a couple different ways, but the most popular one that's most well-known and that he could do at the height of its popularity in less than 10 minutes, that should give you any, any brain surgery that involves 10 minutes as a time marker. <laughs> it's not a jiffy lube, sir. We, you know, we, don't, we don't need to get you in and out and... 15 minutes or less involves taking a stainless steel rod with a T handle at the end, approximately 10 inches in length. And it will go in to the uh, medial aspect of the eye and upward motion. So between the eyeball and the skull 
upwards. So using that steel spike, hitting a little hammer, spike up into your uh, frontal lobe. And uh, that's the part where I don't have a lot more specifics. And I, I do apologize because I'm sure there are some very specific things that he was doing. But he just kind of wiggled the stick around from what I can gather. And then uh, the person that was having seizures no longer had seizures. So effectively, he was eradicating parts of the frontal cortex or lobe, but he wasn't killing the patient. So people are like, oh, he treated him. But he was literally just messing people up. And the interesting thing was that there were several that were completed where they said the patient had no noticeable difference at all. So I'm like, so let me get this straight. A 10 inch stainless steel spike just went into their head through their eyeball. I mean, not through the, you know, the globe, but and they had no noticeable difference. That's a that that by itself is an interesting thing. Even a blind hog gets an acorn every once in a while. I mean, yes, um, that that's true. It became extremely popular. He went around the country doing lobotomies and training people, though he did. I will give him some respect in this. Apparently, he had a very rigid training program and not very many people were allowed to do the the procedure. So thankfully, that happened. But it did get around the world. And. So wait, wait, I'm sorry. I got to stop you for just a second. So he had certain standards that had to be met in order for the person to get, I don't know, say like an advanced practice degree. Just say that one more time. I said, so you're saying that he had like certain standards that had to be met before they would be able to get into uh, the training. Ah. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Even the guy who invented the lobotomy in America knew, hey, you probably shouldn't just let anybody do this. So that's that's pretty good. But his mentor, the guy from Portugal, Dr. Moniz. And again, I don't speak Portuguese, so I don't know if I'm pronouncing that. They won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize for medicine. So that happened. But the story does have a semi good ending. So we can move on to the next topic. Uh, By the 50s, even the Soviet Union said this is not in line with treatment of human beings. That's a quote somewhere in there I found today, and um, they outlawed it. There are cases in Europe and America where they do a type of lobotomy for specific types of lesions or such uh, on the brain matter, and I couldn't find out a lot of information on that. But that's the uh, rough history of the lobotomy, turning people into uh, non-functioning human beings with a steel spike and being paid to do it. But see, here's the thing with that, you know, so that's the history of it. And I get that. How did they decide on the frontal lobe? Like how many times did they like start the brainstem and like drive a spike in there and just. This guy stopped breathing. Like, well, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. Every time we shoot it in through his ear or through the uh, base of his skull, he stops breathing. So we'll just shove it through his eye. Uh, Honestly, again, I, I wish since since I was doing the shotgun approach to gathering topics. I right. didn't have as much time. I like, this wasn't something I've been doing for the past couple of months. So I wish maybe I had some more information or perhaps someday we do something on lobotomies. If people are interested in it, it just wasn't enough information on the cursory subjects that are the cursory search. I did to find that sure. type of level of information of why Freeman chose transorbital or the, the frontal lobe. I can just tell you that it didn't work. 
and he kept doing it. And then, uh, and then other people said, and like I said, my favorite part was even the Soviet Union, who is well known for not having qualms about experimenting on human beings to get to gain their ends, said, whoa, whoa, we, we can't do this anymore. So <laughs> that's, uh, that was an interesting fact to me, is that a country well known for doing whatever it needs to human beings to get what it wants said, mm-mm not doing this anymore. Interesting. Well, Tom, the first one that I'm going to talk about is I'm going to look back at the Middle Ages, and I know we've kind of hit and miss on this, but this was kind of interesting that I found talking about surgeries as a whole and then talking about anesthesia. So surgeons in the Middle Ages were actually considered to be lower status than physicians. People trained as surgeons were barber surgeons. So lots of times they would do like broken limbs and, and things like that, but uh, surgery was considered to be kind of a last resort because there were a lot of problems. Uh, the first... Like dying? <laughs> who knew? That was a problem. Uh, so the major problems with surgery in the Middle Ages were that there was no effective anesthetics to sedate the patient. Uh, there was no complete effective uh, anesthetic techniques to prevent infection. And then the patient might die from shock or loss of blood. So it talks about how... Apparently, Tom, it's difficult to operate successfully on a conscious patient. Speed was essential, and a good surgeon could amputate a leg in under three minutes. However, most patients still died from shock or loss of blood. So, Tom, have you heard the name Robert Liston before? Why, yes, I have. (laughs) Yeah, because I was telling you about it beforehand, but... (laughs) Yeah, no, prior to today, prior to today, if I had heard it, I don't remember it. So Robert Liston was a surgeon in the 1830s, and he is the only surgeon in history to have performed an operation with a 300% mortality rate. (laughs) That's right, 300%. So during a high-speed amputation... He killed the guy three times? Sort of. (laughs) There was some collateral damage. Let's say that. Ah, I see. I wonder what Jayco said about this. (laughs) Well, the patient was no longer in pain, so it was. During a high-speed amputation, he cut off his assistant's fingers, and he slashed the coat of a spectator who fainted in shock. All three died, the patient and the assistant from sepsis and the spectator from shock. You know, this says, this sounds like he was incompetent, but he was actually highly respected Past tense. In 1835, he became the first professor of surgery at the University College London and began, and in 1846, carried out the first operation using ether as an anesthetic in uh, Europe. So, in looking at anesthesia, early 19th century, scientists began to experiment with anesthesia to help put the patient to sleep. The first thing they tried to use was laughing gas. It was good for pulling teeth, but... They really couldn't use it for anything longer than that. In 1846, ether was first used. It knocked the patient out, but it was flammable and caused a little bit of damage to the lungs, which apparently is a problem. In 1847, James Simpson first used chloroform successfully. Now, do you want to know how he did this? I want to go with he, uh, you mean like tested it or gave it to the patient? I'm assuming he tested it on himself. Like he put on a rag and held it up to his own face. Simpson tried it out on himself and two yep. of their doctor friends. 
they tried different doses on each other until they were unconscious. You got to admire the uh, moxie of these guys. Like, well, if I'm going to give it to somebody else, I guess I should try it once myself and just kept going. So he was a professor of midwifery and he first used chloroform to help women in labor. Whoa. Uh, (laughs) Hold on. He gave it to the women in labor. Yes. All right. And then they started using it for operations. It soon became obvious that the most uh, long-lasting and reliable anesthesia, it could knock people out for longer operations, and so it gave surgeons more time to operate. A whole four minutes. However, apparently there were some objections to the use of chloroform. Uh, Some surgeons preferred their patients awake so that they could, quote, fight for their lives. Wow. (laughs) Many religious people felt that pain particularly if childbirth had been sent by God and should therefore not be tampered with. And it was a little difficult to get the dosing right. A 15-year-old named Hannah Greener died while having her toenail removed. I'm I'm here. I'm just speechless, like listening to this, like list of things that you're reading off. I just go on, sir. So ironically, the use of chloroform led to the black period of surgery, which was a 20-year period where the death rate actually went up. This was not the fault of Simpson or of chloroform, but with patients unconscious, they could now take their time over operations and attempt more difficult invasive surgeries. Ah, that makes sense. Patients still died from blood loss or infections picked up in the operating room uh, because the surgeons weren't washing their hands. They coughed over patients. Uh, or bloody aprons as a badge of honor on the wards. Well, they didn't want to wear a mask. That was against their rights. So in the 1850s, John Snow. <laughs> just uh, just skip it right over that one, are you? <laughs> in the 1850s, John Snow, known for his work on uh, cholera, developed an inhaler to help regulate the dosage of chloroform. Well, that's a much better method than spray it on a rag and hold it over their face until they stop kicking. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, I don't. Have you ever been around chloroform? Um, no. Yeah, me neither. But I kind of <laughs> want to try it one time. Just like let's see what happens. So have you have you seen the video of the guy? It was on Facebook, and if I can find it, I'll share it on our page. Where he's like, and I've watched the video probably forty times and laugh every time. He's like, he has a cloth and he's like, and he's like, doesn't work. And then by that time, his eyes roll back and he just falls and you hear him just crashing hard to the floor. No, I haven't. I, if I can find it again, I will, uh, I'll share it to you and I'll share it on our page. Cause All right. Is- well, then if we're going to talk about that, there is a funny video on YouTube. If you just look up nap time, it's supposed to be a uh, child aid. And so it shows people just spraying it like the mom's all frazzled. It looks like an infomercial and the mom's all frazzled because she can't get anything done. You see her spraying this on a rag, holding up to her kid's face and they go to sleep and then she can do the laundry and stuff. Yes. Uh, I thought that was like a Saturday Night Live skit. I thought. No, it's, it's it's by a separate thing. My favorite part is when they show it to an actual doctor or that's what it says. I sh- Let me refer yeah, to that. Right. It says actual doctor and he reads the back of the and goes, this is just chloroform. <laughs> <laughs> It's a really good, uh, yeah, I like some of these videos, yeah. But yeah, I, I would assume that, you know, they figured out 
hey, this stuff works, but we keep killing people on accident with it. Maybe we should find out a better way to get it to the patient. Which is, yeah. And that's kind of where that information ended on, on what I had. But I thought it was an interesting, you know, look at surgery and uh, speed was important. Three minutes to get a leg off is like, I mean, I don't think. And I that's, there's no power off. tools. There's no power tools. That's handsaw. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. yeah. I thought it was damn impressive. Impressive and obviously dangerous. Jesus. All right, Benny. Are you ready for this next one? Yes. So we are well aware of rheumatoid arthritis. Yes. In the 1890s, they also, well, and, I, and I can't find any information. You got to remember, like, the reporter that was talking about this information that I was able to find. I, I don't know how much of it is modernized. So, but basically people knew that they were having joint pain in the 1890s. And then it took off primarily in Australia. The treatment was to find a dead whale carcass and then sit in it up to your neck for up to 30 hours. <laughs> yes. So the very first case, and I can't find the gentleman's name, was in a town of called Eden, which is a whaling area in Australia. And the way the story has been reported is that one of the local townspeople afflicted with this joint pain was so upset over being in pain, he jumped into the rotting dead whale carcass. However, the stench was so overpowering, his friends were unable to pull him out. So he ended up sitting in the dead whale. Now, this part we do know is that the guy was stuck in a dead whale for 30 hours like that. That we know happened. Uh, how or why, what led up to it, that type of stuff, not so sure. What happened for the next 12 months after that, though, was the man said he was cured of all pain. He didn't feel any more pain. So guess what happened? There was a massive run on whale carcasses. Yes. Um, and apparently, not just whale carcasses, but then people started thinking of ways of submersing themselves to help with pain. So in Turkey, bathhouses that at the time they didn't know what it was, but it turned out to be a lot of selenium was in the water, would be helpful. And people would soak themselves in these substances for long periods of time, obviously up to 30 hours. And then they thought, it was a way of treating themselves. The last article in New York Times came out March 7th of 19 or 1896. Here's the thing, though, is it must have been a very short lived because I don't really see a lot of information outside of 1896. And second of all, nobody actually bothered to look into it. And, you know, usually there's some kind of like, well, you know, whale carcasses have whatever element and maybe that helped. Nope. They just told the story of how. Australia became known as the rheumatoid arthritis capital because people kept going there to sit in dead whales. So dead whales, imagine prescribing that. How do you write that out on the prescription? Dispense one refill zero. Like, I don't know. <laughs> what, what do you do? Dead whale. <laughs> dead whale. And it doesn't specify if it matters what type of whale. It just says it has to be a dead whale or freshly slaughtered. Actually, that's also one of the things that it became such a profitable um, business that the whale just didn't have to, you know, 
wash up that they could actually find a whale, kill it, and then you could sit in it as well. I don't know, man. I think that the prior authorization on that's going to be a bitch. Well, <laughs> well, here's the thing, uh, sir, is like, what if they just walked out of the beach and they find one? There you go. No PA required. <laughs> Fair but, enough. I mean, could you imagine, though, like, like the first of all, like I said, his friends were like he the stench was so powerful that they left their friend up to his neck in a dead carcass for 30 hours. How bad a smell does it have to be for you to leave a human being in that condition? Hmm. Well, well, yeah, right. (laughs) So not that this was planned by any means, but we talked about videos a minute ago. Have you seen the video from Oregon in the 1970s of how they blow the whale exploded? Yes. So, so that's how they handled those there. They did not put people in them. They just, well, let, let's just talk. I mean, and you can edit this part out or you can leave it in. I don't care. Cause I happen to know a couple of explosive experts for the United States army. So I've seen that video and I've had it explained to me in detail from the logistical side of using that much explosives on a dead carcass. Here's one of the little side facts. You may not know about that video is that off camera, a guy for the department of Oregon's, you know, whatever interior, I don't know something. He does something for the state of Oregon shows up who was also an explosives guy. And he's like, what are you guys doing? They're like, well, we can't get the whale off the beach. So we're going to, we're going to build this berm and we're going to put the explosives there. And then we're going to blow it out to the ocean. (laughs) And this guy who's an explosives expert talking to people who are not explosive experts, which is this a, is this whole night some kind of weird way a referendum on the current state of America right now? Because people that yeah. don't know what they're talking about are doing things and the experts are like, don't do that. And they're like, yeah, we're going to do it anyways. And then things blow up. So the experts like, hey, um, and tries to explain to them how explosives work and how that will not make the dead body flip out into the ocean. <laughs> right. And then the ensuing fun happens next. So, so yeah, if, and I'm I may just throw a link in the show notes for it, but it, it basically yeah, it was a, a whale that died on the beach. They could not move the whale, so they thought they would blow the whale up with dynamite, and they did. I mean, they effectively removed it. However, well, um, they removed I, it from the beach. They yeah. just spread it all over everywhere else. So yeah, you need to watch the video because you can hear just thuds. Yeah. It, it, the video will be in the show notes. Just watch that. 10 pounds to 100 pound chunks of dead whale just landing on cars. Not only it's dead a- whale, dead rotting whale. <laughs> yes, the stench must have been pretty horrific. But there must have but I bet there was no rheumatoid arthritis in, no. in that day. <laughs> Weirdly enough, now that you say that, we need to look up the race of uh, RA in Oregon. See, might be onto something. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, Tom. I have one that I'm going to break down into several. Um, so I'll, I'll let you, I mean, I'm, I'll do part of mine and then I'll, we'll come back to it. Okay. Um, so the black plague again, you know, Hey, it was a pandemic. Who knew? <laughs> wow. The bubonic plague, you know, that, that had the infected limb glands that broke out all over the. Yeah. Full of black dots. Body. About 30 million people died from the black plague or the bubonic plague. So I was looking back at um, some cures Uh, most of which were ineffective and some which were fatal that kind of fell into several categories. And so the first one that I wanted to look at 
was animal cures. And not that we're curing animals of the bubonic plague, but we're using animals to cure the bubonic plague. So one of the most popular cures for the Black Plague was the Vickery Method, which was named after an English doctor, Thomas Vickery, who first proposed it. I mean, you know, if you come up with something, they're going to name it after you. That's Um, fair. Yeah, I thought so. A healthy chicken was taken, and its back and rear plucked clean. The bare part of the live chicken was then applied to the swollen lymph nodes or the swollen nodes of the sick person, and then they strapped the chicken in place. When the chicken showed signs of illness, it was thought to be drawing the disease out of the person, so the chicken was removed, washed, and then strapped back on, and this continued until either the chicken died or the patient died. Okay. Um, I would love to hear the control versus sample group on this study. Well, we lost 32 chickens and 38 people. I don't, what happened? Like, yeah. You know what? Literally the very first thought though, when you said live chicken was major league (laughs) and Serrano, when he has to try and sacrifice a live chicken to make him be able to hit a curveball, pretty much the same accuracy rate. Honestly, if you think about it, chicken ass on your armpit or sacrifice a chicken to hit a curveball, roughly the same accuracy. So a couple other animal cures for you, Tom. Find a snake, kill the snake, drop it into pieces, and rub the various parts over the swollen nodes. Skinned or not skinned? Uh, it does not specify. I think you just, you, well, you cut it into pieces, and so I think you probably run, rub like the actual like internal portion of the snake. Yeah, yeah, you want the blood and guts on you. That's what yeah. makes it good. Uh, so the snake was uh, synonymous in Europe with Satan, so it was thought to be drawing the disease out of the body as evil would be drawn to evil. Hold up. Here's the interesting thing. Wait. <laughs> Go on. It makes a notation. Pigeons were also used in the same way. However, the reason that the pigeon was chosen is unclear. Okay. <laughs> wow, I like the random pigeon thrown in there. But know, right? Like what? So they think snakes are evil. Yes. They think the plague is evil. Yes. They think by adding evil to evil will somehow negative affect the evil. Like a double like, negative. Yeah, I, I mean, I get what you're saying, but nobody thought to say hey if you think the snake's evil maybe you shouldn't rub the evil all over the person that's already dying well i think they thought that evil was like a magnet <laughs> evil was drawn to evil well i so there is an old thing called cruentation that actually revolves around that theory but yeah i i don't know at any time they're like so you burnt your finger what i should do is i should light a stick on fire and then put the fiery stick onto the burn and it'll make yep. the burn go away. Yes. Yeah. So they didn't do that. So they knew that the theory was bullshit. And then they they decided to. But I mean, and while it is funny to make fun of, because that is really fucking stupid. At the same time, they're desperate. I mean, 30 to 50 million people are dying around them. You want to find something to keep your wife and your kids safe. And I get that. Well, there was one other animal that they often sought after for its curative powers, Tom. Hmm. The unicorn. Drinking. Oh, I thought you were going to say Hillary Clinton. No. <laughs> she wasn't. A, nah. I don't know how she survived the plague. Um, Emails. 
She coded herself in emails. Drinking a powder made of the ground-up horn of the unicorn mixed in water was thought to be an effective remedy and was also the most expensive remedy. The unicorn, however, could not easily be caught, Tom. And oh, you don't be- say. Oh, no, it gets better. It had to be lulled into submission by a young virgin maiden. <laughs> so who was the first guy to say, I drank unicorn horn and it cured me? Because here's, here's, you know, what inevitably comes next. Well, I want unicorn horn. And now he has to try and explain why he doesn't have any more. Yeah. So then he has to go find young virgin maiden, maidens to go hang around with and lull unicorn into submission. So I think instead of, you know, using the phrase snake oil, you know, like we talk about like snake oil salesman. Yeah. We needed to be, you know, from now on, we need to use the phrase unicorn horn salesman. Well, same basic, same principle, except there were actual snake oil salesmen. And as you just said, snake oil, apparently if you apply liberally to your body will draw out evil. So, I mean, that's not really wrong either. Well, there were also unicorn horn salesmen. Well, clearly, yes, that one, I would, that's the premium. You've tried two doses of snake oil. Now nah, you got to kick that up a notch, bro. Got to right. get this unicorn horn. Yeah. I wonder what they use because clearly it's fake, right? So now in my head, I'm going, what substance did they use? And then I, tell I people. They had to use like, maybe, you know, because it's the horn. So maybe they're using like hooves of horses or something and grinding it up. I don't know. I would assume that they could just find some chalk or clay. Just be like, here you go. This is what it looks like. Like, who's going to argue? They don't know what a unicorn horn looks like mixed up. Right. Then I'd be so like, at this point, I could I could nah. hand you. Uh, yeah, I could hand you a, a caramel apple sucker and be like, that's unicorn horn. You can't fight me. You don't know. So it's a fair point. Fair. And point. who doesn't like a sucker? So. <laughs> All right. Your turn, sir. All right. I'm going to speed up on these last two because we're getting down here towards the end. So uh, we talked about bathing and stuff earlier. Same principle. Do you know what was discovered most famously in 1898? What's that? Radium. Marie Curie and her husband discover radium in 1898, which, by the way, rendered her body so radioactive that the mausoleum that her and her husband ended up being buried in has to be like encased in lead. So like you can't even go into it anymore. And then her notebooks, which are still, you can still see them, but you have to get special permission. I can't remember where they're stored. They're actually stored in like one foot lead boxes because they're so radioactive from all the radium that they were around. So they can't clearly display them in a museum, but you can still, if you're a researcher, still look at them, which I find cool. So she finds, so she finds this stuff. 1898. Guess what happens in the early 1900s? Um, I don't know. People go, hey, this stuff glows. It must be good for you. And so they start getting amounts of radium. And it was very popular. Uh, there was a few places I found in America that had this. But primarily, this is a Western Europe issue. So they would create spas. And literally, the water would glow yellow. There'd be so much radium. And people would sit in it. And that's what they did to make themselves feel better. So if you had a variety of issues such as nausea, 
headaches, fatigue, tremors, stuff like that, the prescription was to go sit in a radium bath. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ben, <laughs> do you want to guess what happens after that? I'm going to assume radiation poisoning. You would think, here's the, here's the insidious nature of, of the radium, okay, is that the first one or two times you do it, you are unlikely, depending on the amount of time that you spend around the radium, you are unlikely to get a severe enough dose to cause problems. So that's what that's what was causing problems for everybody was that you and I would go sit in this radium bath. Of course, now we're probably sterile. That part I don't have any statistics on, but it, it certainly was probably causing some short term effects. What happened, though, was me and you were like, oh, well, we feel better because of the placebo effect. We convinced ourselves that sitting in radium water or drinking radium water was now healing us. So then we'd have our wives and our children do it. And we kept doing it over and over and over. And by the time people figured out uh, we're getting radiation sickness because all of a sudden the kids started having rashes. Those rashes weren't from exposure to poison ivy. It was, you know, radiation poisoning and burns that that's when the damage had already been done. And so that was one of the reasons that this radium was such a problem for so long. I shouldn't say so long for several years, but I mean enough is that people kept exposing themselves to it unlike something like plutonium which oh you expose yourself once to it guess what a couple hours later you start showing radiation sickness and die this right. stuff you could keep going back and back and back mm -hmm. and then eventually all of a sudden you're like hey i'm really sick <laughs> and then you die slowly huh so again to me that's creepy because you don't realize it's bad. Like there were certain things that are inherently to the human nature. Like I know this is bad. I don't like werewolves because they're going to kill me. Like, I just know that's going to happen. Right. Right. But when you're sitting in this water and you're like, Oh, it's warm radiation and it's glowing radiation. Yeah. This can't be that bad for me. And, and it kills you slowly. Yeah. Then it is. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that's why it's super creepy. Cause it's like, Oh, you kept doing it to yourself over and over and over. Just ugh, terrible. Huh. Interesting. Um, all right. So looking, going back to the plague briefly. Um, this There's one, one thing Ben loves tonight. It's the plague. Damn right. Potions, fumigations, and paste. Pastes. Uh, pastes? No, pastes. Paste dye. Paste dye. I don't know. <laughs> Potions, fumigations, and pastes. So... Physicians would often grind emeralds, the stone, emerald stones, with a mortar and pestle, and they would administer it to the patient as a fine powder mixed with either food or water. You know, emeralds, I'm sure, were expensive, and so if you could not afford to consume the emeralds, uh, you know, there's some other things around that you could potentially drink, like arsenic and mercury that they did use, and that killed them a whole lot faster than the plague did. A couple other potions that they used, uh, one that's still around uh, today is... Uh, Four Thieves Vinegar. It was a combination of cider, vinegar, or wine with spices such as sage, clove, rosemary, and wormwood. Uh, it was thought to be a potent protection against the plague. But it is uh, bullshit. It was allegedly was created and used by four thieves who were able to rob the homes of the dying and graves of the dead because the drink made them immune to the plague. Um, hmm. It's still used in homeopathic medicine. It's an essential oil. Thieves, that's where it comes from. Um, oh, 
It's probably up there with colloidal silver, right? So if I just douse myself in that. I think colloquial silver is actually going to be potentially harmful for you, or I don't think it necessarily is. But the last one that they, uh, as far as potion-wise, that they talked about was, uh, and I may butcher this name, uh, Theriac. Sounds correct to me. Uh, recipes often would contain up to 80 ingredients, 80, and often significant amounts of opium. <laughs> That's the key. The ingredients were ground into a paste, which was then mixed with syrup and consumed as needed. Uh, so then getting into fumigation, people thought that they could uh, fumigate oneself by sitting very close to a hot fire, which would draw the disease out by heavy sweating. Another technique for fumigation was to sit by an open sewer as the, quote, bad air, which was causing one sickness, would gravitate to the bad air of the sewage. Again, evil and evil. How'd that work out? Well, not well. <laughs> And then as far as paste, human waste was used and turned into a paste for uh, purposes of applying it to the open lesions once they were lanced. And then urine was considered to have uh, medicinal properties and people would bathe in it or drink it. Urine collectors were paid quite well by doctors for a clean product. Wow. That is some of the most disgusting things I've ever heard. You are. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. Hope Mr. Johnson ate a big sandwich. We're going to need some paste for later. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's disgusting. And take that and rub that on an open wound. I don't know why people were dying. <laughs> I did read somewhere that the ancient Greeks actually uh, considered pus a uh, good sign of an infection. So uh, these guys could figure out that the world was round and, you know, the base philosophy of humankind, but they couldn't figure out the people that had green snot like substance coming from a cut tended to die more than the other ones. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, you couldn't see to an extent just because, I mean, it's it's then coming out. You're thinking, oh, well, it must be getting better because it's okay. But I submit to you. That basic observation goes, so guy A has a cut, no pus, he lives. Guy B has cut, pus present, he dies. And then you see that 14,000 more times, and you're like, so the guys whose wound heals without purulent drainage, he lives. But all these guys over here with the snot-like substance, they keep dying. I submit to you that guy A and guy B both have cuts, one with pus, one without, both die. And that's repeated. Well, <laughs> okay. So it is ancient Greece. You're right. That probably was happening. So they it was it was a crapshoot either way. <laughs> all right. Well, let me get to my last one. Yes. And then it kind of ties it all back together. Because have you ever heard of trepanning or trepanation? I've heard that I- I think I have, but I can't place what it is exactly. So trepanning or trepanation is the act of cutting a hole in one's own skull. I shouldn't say, I guess that would be auto trepanation. So the act of cutting one into your skull, but a lot of people tend to do it on their own. Huh. Yeah. Think about that for a second. Some doctors are going to be like, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna give you this rock thing. I'm going to make a hole in your head, and then I want you to just till it it doesn't hurt anymore and then they create a hole the thought process being that let's say and and there was i will give them at least this much credit they didn't do it for everything this is wasn't one of those cases where 
oh, you uh, got ear pain. Well, you must have the ear ghost. So let's put a hole in your head. Like it wasn't like that, you know, but people that were suffering from seizures. Well, what we know to be seizures now, who knows what they were calling them then to migraine headaches. They thought it must be an overabundance of pressure. And I'm saying I, I say that lightly because they have actually found cave artwork all the way back to like prehistoric, like there was no written record of what they believe are acts of trepanation. So this has been around for a awfully long time. So we can only guess at to what the written record says. And in the written records, it was saying, Hey, we try and reserve it for people that are having really bad headaches that they are finding no relief, you know, like they cut their arm and they rub poop on it. That's not helping this headache. So now we're going to put a hole in their head because we think it's going to relieve the pressure. So people would specifically allow physicians or themselves would create these cuts in their skull. And there was a variety of tools. There were so many different tools for it that there isn't one specific trepanation tool I can point you to. But usually there is some kind of circular blade that they would use to make the hole into the skull and then some kind of device to actually fracture the skull so that they could remove part of the skull exposing the brain. But then unlike the Luke economy, nothing was put into it. It was just supposed to be like, okay, there it is. And now that it's got some fresh air, it'll get better, which clearly it didn't, but that was the thought process. Hmm. So Ben, let's say it's uh 1770. And someone says, yes. hey, I know you've had that headache for three days. You know what? Bill down the street has got a way to fix that. Do you let them put a hole in your head? I say, why not? Right? I mean, I have a headache for three days. I got the ear ghost. So <laughs> we'll let that thing out. No. I, uh, this, I The milk of the poppy is not helping. So The milk of the poppy. We went Game of Thrones on this one, <laughs> didn't we? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think. I think my basic human survival instinct, I at least hope would kick in. It's like I came with a preset number of holes and I am not going to add to them. I think that's what I would do. Fair enough. But I will, I, I will point out I'm not, we have access to modern medicine and perhaps I've never been. I mean, I've, I've hurt myself pretty good or I've been hurt pretty good, but and I, and I guess I can't say what I would do if I'd been in pain for three days and there's no chance of fixing it. Maybe at some point, I mean, I will tell you right now, I think we talked about during the gout episode. I literally would have considered amputating my foot. So maybe trepanning would have happened. I don't know. Interesting. I would definitely um, do it to somebody else, though. Like if I was like, yeah, yeah, you got the headaches. I got to trepan you right away. Here's some chloroform. <laughs> so I have one more and we have talked about this one before but I found some some more information that I found interesting and then there's some controversy that apparently has come up, has come up in the last couple of years about this also. Okay. Female hysteria. Yeah. So we we and we talked about That's this on the, on the last episode. Uh we talked about it. Hold on, I'll tell you what we talked about. Hold on one second. We talked about it in 2018 and 2019. Well, we're just going <laughs> to. Hey, it's, it it's a Halloween tradition. <laughs> we got to talk about the genitals. <laughs> um, so this uh, went much more in depth into it. And I found that kind of interesting. So 
goes back all the way to Greek philosopher uh, Hippocrates. Uh, he was the first to mention hip, uh, hysteria. Uh, Plato wrote that hysteria was caused by the women not having children. Uh, the childless womb would become distressed and move throughout the body, which caused health problems. That's one of the conditions I almost covered tonight. They called it walking womb. Yeah. Uh, many people in early societies believed that the woman's womb wandered through her body, causing a variety of medical problems by making contact with other organs like the liver, lung, or brain. <laughs> well, I can tell you from experience, uteruses do cause problems for the male of the species. So it's true. <laughs> and they're pretty much useless without a baby in them. So <laughs> there's a story behind that. Physicians would prescribe medical treatments, including marriage, heterosexual <laughs> pregnancy, and applying pleasant smelling oils to the female genitals and external vaginal stimulation with the idea that the treatments would anchor the uterus back into its proper location. <laughs> Physicians continued to diagnose women with female hysteria and continued to practice external genital stimulation as a treatment for hysteria. Um, according to Havelock Ellis, Physician and author of The Psychology of Sex, a study estimated that in 1913, 75% of women suffered from female hysteria. I bet you he anchored a lot of uteruses, you know what I'm saying? He must have. As far as that study, here are the common symptoms, Tom. This reads like a medicine commercial, more or less. So common symptoms for hysteria, Tom, headache, forgetfulness, irritability, insomnia, writing cramps, hot flashes, excessive vaginal bleeding, heaviness in the limbs, use of coarse language, severe cramping, difficulty breathing, desire for clitoral stimulation, hyperpromiscuity, mood swings, nausea, anxiety, drowsiness, loss of appetite, aging, aging, <laughs> you say that one more time, aging, aging was a part of hysteria, back pain, swollen feet, cancer, organ failure, endometriosis, heart disease, and epileptic fits, as well as symptoms for depression, schizophrenia, and other psychological disorders. No anal leakage? No anal leakage. Well, they missed so, that one. Doctors at the time believed that women were biologically weak and flawed for exhibiting behavior and bodily functions that 21st century scholars consider normal. Uh, they claimed that doctors thought these symptoms of the women's disease warranted medical intervention and correction. So... At the time, in the 1800s, physicians and scholars did not attribute external genital stimulation with sexual practice. Uh, they believed that the uh, clitoral stimulation through medical pelvic massage could effectively reduce symptoms of hysteria. So they, at the time, they believed that only vaginal penetration was sexually stimulating for women, and so physicians were actually against the use of tampons and speculums uh, because they believed that the women would become instantly aroused. You're treading thin water, brother. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just reading what the facts say. I'm just yeah, telling yeah. you that nowadays in this common in the modern society, you you're. I'm just saying. I'm throwing out facts. I'm spitting information at you. Okay. Here's, well, I'm spitting information back. If the female <laughs> don't, don't patient, <laughs> if the female patient became flushed and relieved during a pelvic massage treatment for hysteria. They explained that she was experiencing a hysterical uh, paroxysm, which is now known as the orgasm. Uh, that signified that the treatment was successful and the physician would believe that the patient uh, had been relieved of her negative symptoms attributed to the hysteria. 
Before they used vibrators for pelvic massage, they would use hydrotherapy, which was one of the first technological advancements in treating hysteria. So basically what they would do is aim a powerful jet of water at the woman's inner thighs and genitals. Health specialists claimed the device could cause hysterical paroxysm, orgasm, in under four minutes. Um, Women frequently left the treatment feeling extreme relief from hysteria and felt as as if they had been drinking champagne. Yeah, with their uterus firmly anchored. So, you know, I'm treading thin water, so we're just going to keep on. Oh, boy. So, um, according to a couple of historians, um, during the Victorian period of the 1800s, as literacy rates among women increased, doctors attributed higher rates of hysteria to the alleged dangerous behaviors of intellectual women, including attending school and working outside of the home. I I agree with all this information. Stop it. The 1899 edition of the Merck Manual uh, listed genital massage as a treatment for hysteria. I'm just thinking the next time my wife yells at me, I'm going to be like, you know what you need? Some historical or hysterical paroxysm. And then after she gets done hitting me, I'm going to be like, no, I was trying to help out. No, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a book written called The Technology of Orgasm, and that's where uh, the uh, information came out about physicians using and developing vibrating machines to treat women with hysteria to save time and avoid the uh, laborious task of manual massage on the increasing number of female patients. Um, In 1869, American physician George Taylor patented one of the first medical vibrators called the manipulator. Yep. Um, He sat on it. It was a padded table with a hole cut out to reveal the lower abdomen through which the vibrating sphere massaged the genitals. Um, it was coal-powered, which I thought was kind of interesting. One of the other generations that come out after that come out with a 40-pound battery that was only produced in Britain. Yes. Uh, that was the early 1880s. Oh. Mortimer Granville. That was the Bur- What a name. Right? <laughs> I want to change my name to Mortimer Granville now. However. I think that was the guy on the Monopoly game. If you're looking for a name for your child, go with Mortimer Granville. I swear um, to God, go with Mortimer Granville. I might name my next dog that. Just be like, Mortimer Granville. <laughs> he uh, wrote in 1883 that he did not intend for the device to be used to treat hysteria and rather intended it to use only for male muscle fatigue. Um, oh. He believed that women might mimic hysterical symptoms in order to gain treatment despite not needing it for medical reasons. I really thought for a minute you were going to be like Mortimer, because I'm imagining a dude wearing a monocle now. Right. Uh, didn't didn't call it or didn't want it used for histor- uh, hysteria. He's like, no, I just want chicks to get off. Like, I really thought that was going to be the next sentence after that. So, <laughs> you know, we've talked, as I've said before, that we talked about how the physicians had created the vibrator to help with this. Yeah. That apparently, carpal tunnel. Yeah. That apparently is where the controversy is coming from, Tom. Oh, Lord. What they're saying now is there's no historical evidence supporting that. And this book, uh, The Technology of Orgasm, that was written in 1999, was just her hypothesis that physicians did this, or created vibrating machines. Not that it was actually there, but there have been several other historians that have come out and scholars that have come out and said there is no definitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's no creative vibrators. Yeah, 
I, I understand what you're saying, but when you got a bunch of machines going, hey, we're here to create a hysterical paroxysm. By the way, that's an orgasm. Um, we're creating entire machines to manipulate their genitals. That the only way to cure women of hysteria is through orgasm. I understand that some doctor didn't put in his chart, clicked her button. She got off. She left happy. Like, I understand, like, there's no chart that says that. But there is an entire industry at this point that you just described several machines, one of which was coal powered. Think about that for a second. To get women to have an orgasm to be less hysterical. Now, I, I, I'm not stating whether I believe that that's proper or improper i'm just stating that's what was happening right right and now people several hundred years later are going i should say multiple hundreds of years later i guess i wouldn't say several are trying to argue this one my first question would be like why what the fuck are you gaining from this two how much evidence do you need blatantly laid out in front of you making the case to say that this is obvious i i yeah i mean like I said, I, I understand that there's no doctor that wrote, hey, I made her have an orgasm and then she left. Like, that's not what they were going to document anyways. He was going to document she had his uh, hysteria and she was showing aging, figure out how that's part of the problem. And then she used the machine. She felt better. She left. Hmm. I mean, yeah, no, I, that's I, what it's going to say. So. So, Tom, do you want to take, and uh, you might already know this, hell, I don't know. Do you want to take a guess that when they considered the orgasm no longer to be therapeutic, as far as it wasn't a medicinal thing? Okay, I'm going to go with it's not. I know, I'm saying, what was, year do, do you think that they considered I was, I was going to say, I don't think they've ever said that. But if I'm going to guess, 2008. <laughs> no, 1920s. Oh, okay. I uh, figured it was in an email. Because <laughs> it just becomes so funny now. So. In the 1920s, they uh, had stag films, which are pornographic films, uh, featured medical vibrators in a sexual context, which then made them socially unacceptable. So physicians at that point began considering vibrators as sex toys and perceived their use in women as something sexual rather than therapeutic. Oh, so they saw them for what they really were. Yes. Okay. Do you know when the American Psychiatric Association removed hysteria from its diagnosis list? 1929. 1952. Well, so they kept it around for a few years just in case. <laughs> like, hey, maybe this little hysteria thing will go low so we can get back to this. And apparently we're not allowed to use hysterical paroxysm anymore. As it's now basically the relief of tension achieved through the external genital manipulation or masturbation and an orgasm. I'm still going to call it that. Just like I'm going to ask my uh, significant other later if she wants me to anchor her uterus. So, wow. (laughs) (laughs) She'll say no, but I mean, I'm going to ask it that way. Maybe I'll trick her into something. She's like, sure. I'm like, whoa, what? Really? So (laughs) there you go. I don't feel like you're anchoring anything. Wow. So that wraps up our third annual Halloween episode. We had to end with vibrators and masturbation. Because that's what I think every year, that's how we end it. Vibrators. And then we're going to get kicked off the air. Yeah. We talk about how we're going to get thrown off. Apple won't make our podcast anymore. 
and vibrators. I guess we'll have to find out something about like male masturbation or something next year. I don't know. Nope. I'm not doing that one. Nope. We've hashed vibrators and masturbation. We talked about spermatorrhea rings and how they're anti-masturbatory for males. Um, And that's as much as I ever want to cover on it again. So fair enough. If you uh, like this episode, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, at just some podcast websites, www.justsomepodcast.com. Email admin at just some podcast.com. Tom, that's the, uh, that that wraps her up, man. It was a, it was a good time. I enjoyed it. Uh, there's a whole lot less cringing this time this year. So that's, that's good. Minus the acid in the brain. Yeah. I mean, it was less cringy, but it still was like, uh, like that's still how we, you know, did medicine. Yeah. Was. But like it, it, it didn't kill them less. As a matter of fact, if you really want to think about what we talked about tonight, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But if you really think about what we talked about tonight was way more deadly than anything we've covered before. Yeah. No, it was like all about. Oh, okay. mass killing. Yeah. Like this. This wasn't 15 people. We're talking about the plague here. We, we took out a third of Europe. So mass killing and chloroform. Who knew? Nap time. <laughs> so anyway. Good stuff. And I don't know what we're going to talk. Oh, well, next week, Tom, we will have on um, uh, two guests, which will be a first for us to have actually two people on at one time. And we're going to talk about how ready is a lie, basically, and how it's, it's more talking about entrepreneurship as, you know, more nurse practitioners getting out into full practice states and potentially want to look at opening their own business. And so we kind of focus on that next week. So that'll be interesting. It, it, it was a really good show. I had a really good time um, interviewing them, and I thought it was really great information. And I think everybody that's listening that is involved in healthcare in some sort of way can really – I think even non-healthcare people will be able to get something from it, but not in a healthcare manner. And that will make more sense when you hear the show. And everybody should really like it unless they're Colts fans. And then you're not going to like the show so much. But other than that, you're going to love the show. That's true. And this show should be coming out. You should be listening to this on Halloween. So, you know, we got through October and we didn't really talk too much about breast cancer and breast cancer awareness. However, I do want to say, make sure that you are feeling your boobies or go see Tom and he'll fill them for you in a professional sense. No. <laughs> yes. No professional sense only. Activisms. Just yes. Professional sense only. <laughs> no anchoring of uteruses at work hours. Oh my god. Uh, on that note, get your mammograms. Have a great week. Hey everybody, stay safe out there and get your mammograms. Practice swearing just to pass the time. Lately I see why. I've 